So welcome back to Leaders of Consulting, the show that brings you interviews with subject matter experts in the trenches, sharing their own perspectives, tips and resources they picked up along the way for your benefit. On this episode, we're joined by Lisa Thee, who is a consultant to healthcare and global tech companies, including Microsoft. Um, she's also the CEO and co-founder of MinorGuard, an artificial intelligence software company focused on making children safer online and in real life. Uh, she's also a keynote speaker, having delivered her own TEDx talk, and is also the host of the Navigating Forward podcast. So, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thrilled to be here. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, great to great to have you on. Um, so, Lisa, I'd love to uh, kind of kick us off with um, you telling us a little bit more about uh, you know, your, how you're increasingly finding yourself in an advisory role and any pivotal moments that led you to go down that, that path that you can point to. Sure. So I had a pretty traditional corporate career for the first 15 years of my work life. Uh, so I came out of engineering school, went into a large multinational company, filled a lot of varied roles, got a, a wide breadth of experience uh, during that process. And what I learned was I, I kind of like to be the one who addresses the big, hairy situation uh, that nobody else wants to touch. Uh, I like to get into something that needs a lot of process, a lot of structure, um, some vision, and like bring that innovation to bear to solve something that I can do uniquely well. And so through that process, you know, working in tech, I had a lot of opportunities to grow those skills over time. And it got to the point where I realized that the problems that I wanted to solve weren't completely aligned with the company's mission and vision any longer. And so that was really when I found myself going into entrepreneurship, uh, which was a little bit later in life. I, I didn't found my first company until after 40. I certainly didn't dream of blowing up my career and redesigning my life. But in order to align with my integrity and my vision for the kind of legacy that I wanted to leave, that was a, a necessary requirement. And so uh, once I did that uh, for my own company, um, we were able to exit into a larger player in the market and see some of our roadmap uh, actually reflected in products that people use uh, on a daily basis. Uh, I learned that a lot of times the people that are controlling budgets and making those decisions in big companies don't have as much access to that innovative thinking that the entrepreneurship world provides. And a lot of times the folks that are operators in entrepreneurship don't have as much experience in the corporate setting to understand how to speak the language and justify, you know, creating budgets for things versus spending something that they already knew they wanted. So I find myself in that advisory role kind of both ways. I, I sit between margins. Uh, I'm the translator. I help listen to everybody's needs and find the right teams to put together to address it collaboratively and innovative in new ways. That's really interesting. And I'm curious, you know, serving both uh, on the sort of corporate innovation side of things and also helping on the sort of scaling startups on the other side, is it, it, it must be challenging to deal with both different sets of, you know, groups of people. I'm curious, like, how have you been able to sort of, I don't know, make that division or, or, or compare compartmentalize or is is that challenging is there do you ever do ever times you feel like maybe you should just focus on one side or or how, how does that play out I'm curious yeah for me I've always been a studier of people I think if I could start my career over I would do something between social work and anthropology I just find people really fascinating so I think this plays to my curiosities uh, I think the other strength that I bring to the table is a strong empathy for folks in both sides of the, the table. I've yeah. been the founder, uh, 
accountable to investors, accountable to a board, and having to justify my fiduciary responsibility for the decisions I'm making. And on the other hand, I've been the, uh, you know, somewhere mid-career senior manager director level at a large uh, multinational company that has to showcase why I'm making the choices that I'm making, how they make sound investment decisions from a return on investment, and how they're aligned with where the company's going. And uh, those are two very different skill sets, um, being an entrepreneur and being an entrepreneur. And a lot of times, um, their languages don't align. So I, I almost deem myself a translator of a type of helping them understand each other because very often I see uh, they're speaking to each other, but they're speaking past each other because their terminology and lexicon isn't aligned. And, you know, doing technical sales and business development for many, many years in my career now, that's oftentimes the business stakeholders and the technical stakeholders that aren't necessarily understanding each other or aligning. So oftentimes I find myself in a position of being able to listen for the places where they overlap, where they could be accelerants for each other and helping them get out of their own way to recognize that when waters rise, all boats float uh, and there's a lot of value in the collaboration. Yeah, oh, that's excellent. Um, sounds like you have quite a quite a versatile skill set as well. Looking at your your background, <laughs> thank you. I'd say I'm more of a generalist than a specialist in anything. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And uh, I'm curious: um, are there any particular uh, resources or bodies of work that you can point to that you you feel as though had a big impact on the way you think about you know the work that you do that you can point to? Sure. Um, When I was entering entrepreneurship, uh, it was a very new field to me. And so I really enjoyed the startup podcast from Gimlet Media. It really helped me to kind of feel a communal sense of what it's like to be stepping out uh, on your own for the first time. And, you know, the element of being promoted to CEO and the head of legal and the head of HR and the head janitor and IT support all at once is pretty daunting. And not a lot of people understand that you're getting married to your company in a a whole nother level of maybe what it's like working in a specialized role within corporate America. So I really enjoyed that podcast. Really, I learned a lot through the process of listening to somebody else's journey of founding a company real time, and then also seeing the impacts it had on their family and their social lives and their self-esteem. It really made me feel like I wasn't alone. And that was really valuable for me. I also learned a lot about, you know, we see the shiny stories of success. We don't often hear the really gritty backstories of it. I mean, it was through that podcast I learned things like Slack was a gaming company until they ran out of runway and figured out they had this one really valuable asset and now look at them today. Or, you know, Twitch was down to a week of runway when they were acquired by Amazon. And so I think, you know, seeing that, that glossy, successful story we all like to to watch in the hero's journey is not necessarily what it feels like to live it. Yeah. Um, so I think it kind of demystifies the process and gives me hope and confidence when things um, can be looking up or down at any given time. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting example. Uh, that was that was one of my favorite shows as well, especially that that first standout season where it follows the. Uh, yeah, the journey of the host himself starting his own podcast company. Um, and like you say, very transparent and 
you know, he records those very vulnerable moments when he's, you know, sitting at the kitchen table at like three in the three a.m. in the morning, wondering what he's doing and whispering so he doesn't wake up the kids and the family and so on. I think we've all had those moments privately. It's uh, always refreshing to have somebody that's being willing to be that vulnerable and share that joint human experience. Uh, we all have those moments where we're like, "Ooh, did I did I step out too far? Is yeah. this really going to be okay?" And um, most of the time it is. We learn a lot more from our failures and our successes in life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, switching gears a little bit to, to focus more on the work that you do and the, the expertise you provide. Um, can you tell me um, a bit about, you know, the challenges your clients come to you with and how do, how do you find them or how do they find you? <laughs> Uh, great question. I've always done sales the wrong way, but it worked <laughs> for me, so I'm going to stick with it. Uh, my way of approaching sales is really through more of a thought leadership lens. I'm really passionate around how do we leverage disruptive and innovative technologies and influential leaders to address really challenging problems at scale. Um, so some of the places that I am really drawn to are digital safety, privacy, cybersecurity, and innovation in places that touch people's lives from both a public and private setting. So things like healthcare, things like government, uh, things that you want to make sure you get the right balance of safety and privacy to make the right decisions um, to benefit a larger group of people. And so in that place, uh, I found my my area of expertise is really helping people to embrace AI for digital transformation in their chosen field. So the people that like to work with me are typically leaders that have a vision for a legacy that they want to leave, are passionate about a specific topic that's been really difficult to address up until now, and are willing to look at ways to leverage innovation to break through and address social justice issues at, at scale. Sometimes that can be things like human trafficking that rely on a lot of personal identifiable information in order to be able to do interventions and recover victims, or things like healthcare innovations and helping to accelerate diagnostics for groups of people, especially when those groups may not be middle-aged white men that a lot of the medical research studies are based on. Or that can look like things in climate change and sustainability. It's really about the business problem isn't the magic. The magic is being able to identify really what you're trying to accomplish, where you are today, and helping to create that journey and empathy map for how to get from where you are to where you want to be and what tools to put in your tool belt to get there. Yeah, interesting. And and when you're, you know, dealing with, um, you know, AI and slightly newer technologies, um, do you find it's like a fertile gr uh, ground for misunderstandings or, or misconceptions? Are there things that you continually find yourself kind of butting your head against that you wish sometimes people, more people would understand? Yeah, I would say that the places where I find the most frustration is in the education layer. AI is pretty in its infancy still. I've been deploying solutions in the wild for seven years or so now. And there's not a lot of people that can actually say that, <laughs> that aren't working at a handful of companies that you probably can can count on your fingertips. And so uh, I think what's what continuously frustrates me is we are out of alignment with regulation of industry and the advancement of technology. There are some unintended consequences that I think if people really truly understood 
the impact and scale of some of the safety concerns that have opened up as a result of this, they would be demanding more from their legislatures and the companies that, and brands they use every day. I wish I could help people that are building the next generation of innovation and entrepreneurs really understand the need for designing with safety in mind up front. Um, because when you're living on a, a burn rate sheet and just trying to meet your investor expectations, there's a lot of pressure to scale as fast as humanly possible. But it's really hard to recover from technical debt once it's there. And sometimes just an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So I think my frustration level with helping people understand is typically more on the human side than the technology side. The human side is, and I feel this myself, I'm, I'm a working mom. I've got two elementary school age children. I've got a husband. I've got a dog. I've got a lot of responsibilities on my plate outside of, you know, leading my company and, and advising my clients. A lot of times the most important things get pushed down the list. You know that you need to do it. <laughs> you know that it's important, but it's, you know, line item 25 uh, on your list of things to do every day and you never get past 15. Um, and a lot of times that's that's safety. And that really concerns me uh, being in the field, especially as it uh, affects marginalized groups like children, women, and diverse members of our society. I don't think anybody sets out to build tools that are misapplied to um, be leveraged by criminals, but there's a lot of vulnerabilities that happen because we don't design the safety of mine up front. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and um, something we were, we were just chatting about earlier, which I found really interesting when I was looking at you know listening to your story on, on other podcasts was a lot of the work you do is around creating technology solutions to preventative measures for, uh, you know, before atrocities occur, um, which is something that actually I hadn't really thought about so much. And I guess because of our overexposure to these events in, in media and the way that they're, you know, wrapped up in these very kind of emotional and politicized uh, viewpoints uh, that we don't think about as much. Yeah, that was just basic um, necessity uh, that forced me that direction after being at the forefront of the trauma cleanup business um, for a couple of years, especially leading the AI for Good group at Intel and working with amazing partners like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children or THORN or, you know, these NGOs that are really on the front lines of making sure that victims are recovered and law enforcement is engaged at the right levels. Um, I just, my tender heart couldn't stay in the trauma cleanup business. I, I just, I couldn't do it. And so I was really looking for ways to find the pearls of wisdom in the oceans of data uh, to get that early signal uh, that something is off and needs a real life intervention. And most of the time, those real life interventions, you know, maybe you use fancy technology to identify the signal in the noise, but the interventions are just common sense. We're all humans. We're wired to connect. We don't thrive in isolation and secrets can only live in the dark. When you can make sure that trusted, caring people are there to support people that are in crisis, oftentimes you can prevent the things that we all read about in the media. And that's my focus and opportunity. How do we, how do we pick up those signals before it's too late? And if we focus a little bit on the work that, you, you know, the, the minor guard, that artificial intelligence software, can you explain a little bit more how, how that goes about making sure that children are, are safer online? Love to hear some more detail around that. 
Absolutely. Um, so when I started my career 20 years back, uh, I was forecast, forecasting the cellular market and we were talking about one day they'll have color displays and cameras, which seems so naive <laughs> to the world that we live in today. Um, but, you know, during that time, never in a million years did it cross my mind that we we're creating a new scalable solution for criminals to abuse children uh, in a much more effective way. Um, one of the ways that they do that is through something called child sexual abuse material or CSAM. And that is content that is documenting a crime against a child and shared with other people for their enjoyment. And I didn't know much about the topic uh, before 2015 when I got pulled into a task force. And, and what I learned was this problem was just growing exponentially. Uh, you know, if you look back at 2013, there was about half a million reports from tech companies into law enforcement about this challenge. Uh, if you fast forward to 2021, uh, that number is more around 21 million. That is an exponential growth rate. You can't just solve that with analysts. So my, my drive for justice um, really wanted to accomplish two things. Number one, how do we reduce the volume? We just can't simply live with that exponential growth curve. And number two, how do we make sure that people that are in the front lines that are looking at some of the hardest, most difficult things in the world and putting themselves at psychological risk to intervene on behalf of the more vulnerable, how do we help them to be able to focus on the most important and impactful cases to get the most people out of danger? Because at the end of the day, we are not going to be able to prevent all of this problem. We have to be smart about the impact that we have and how we improve it. So the first place uh, that really influenced me was learning that 40% of this content is actually generated by children themselves. Um, in the ages of smartphones, you can make a bad 30-second decision, maybe influenced by somebody you want to gain their approval of, and then they have something that can be used to extort you into doing more and more. It can be something that's shared uh, with others to force you to stay in a relationship you're not very interested in staying in, you know, all of those things. And when the average age of a first phone is 10 years old, at uh, like the world we live in today, I just don't think it's reasonable to put that responsibility back on children to not make a 30-second decision that can ruin the rest of their lives and put them on a sexual predator list. I mean, this is a, a felony if you get caught. So we wanted to look at why are we putting the responsibility back on parents and children to make good choices in this space versus having uh, better workflows to make it a more frictionless experience. So we looked at how do we do it at a device level? How do we do it at the camera level? Um, how do we prevent that image from being saved before it ever hits the device? And we leverage AI technology to do that. So if you currently use uh, an Apple device that's later than an iPhone 12 and you have a family iOS account today, when we started, it was about 130 choices to block your child from taking that kind of photo. And today it's, it's a couple bucks buttons and you yeah. have that at, at the device level at your fingertips. So um, I'm really excited to know that, you know, my daughter's 11 right now. I'm, I'm trying, I, I've signed the wait until eighth pledge to get her a smartphone and I will hold to that commitment. Uh, I do think delaying is important, but I am really relieved that there's products on the market today that I can purchase that will support my values and not make me drop my kid off in the most dangerous city in the world and walk away and hope for the best. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there was a, a video of, you know, the process to go through in order to make sure the correct parental 
controls are in place that I saw on one of your websites. And, uh, you know, the t- technology is there, but the knowledge or the, the awareness that like those controls exist um, is maybe a little bit lacking, isn't it? Oh my goodness. I, I'll just be honest. Like, I don't even know how to set up this stuff on my own device. And I'm a tech company founder, for goodness sakes. I have an engineering degree from the University of Michigan. It's complicated. It's tricky. And who the heck has the time to figure all this out? So uh, that was actually, you know, really a, a large reason why I put that video up there was I'm going to need to reference it in a couple of years because I don't even know how to do it. Yeah. I just think it's so ridiculous that um, with the legislative landscape we have on third-party platforms and, you know, some of the policies that we've had around the Commun- Communication Decency Act 230 that give, you know, full immunity to platforms for any harm that happens from third-party content has led us to this unregulated space uh, that, you know, we're seeing these big harms at scale and, it's still on the parents and the kids and society to fix it versus the companies that are bringing this technology to bear. And I, I hope that we move past this season. You know, we didn't have seatbelt requirements in cars for a very long time either. Uh, so I hope that we we continue to evolve in this manner and make it more frictionless for consumers to know how to keep themselves um, within the guardrails. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because thinking about it, you know, the the our personal handheld devices are are probably the most you know private things that we own that we'd be most reluctant to let anyone see. But at the same time, you do need some of those guardrails, you know, those those safety belts, like you you know, similar to the analogy that you made to you know ensure that they aren't you know widely you know misused and so on. Yeah, trust me, uh, people with. Criminal intent are typically early adopters of technology <laughs> and understand it much better than the average population. Um, so I think we need a collaborative approach with regulators, companies, and um, consumers to demand more in the ecosystem to protect us all. I, I think we all want our privacy, but I think we all agree that you know crimes at scale against five-year-olds are not an acceptable cost of doing business either. Yeah. Um- well, Lisa, I, I really commend you on the on the you know the path you've taken. I I'm sure there are a lot of people who you know have considered at one time you know maybe doing something that's you know that's more aligned with their values, but they're maybe a little bit uh, they're just worried. They're just you know afraid of taking that leap of faith. Is is there anything that you would say to someone who's you know maybe they're thinking of going all in on a social endeavor, but they're worried about not really working out in the end. Um, how did you, it sounds like that part of your character is to just, you know, jump in at the deep <laughs> I end. I can deeply relate to that. <laughs> uh, when I was exploring entrepreneurship, I, I was budgeting for months and like figuring out how I was going to avoid being a bag lady because in my mind, all roads lead to homelessness and bag lady. Uh, if you leave something stable. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a couple things uh, that come to mind and I've got some courses in entrepreneurship that you can access at spark passion with my fellow founder, Emily Kennedy, uh, if you're interested on teachable uh, for more detail, but at a high level, it's this number one, give yourself a runway. Um, You know, in my mind, I was like, I'm giving myself a year to do this. And a lot of people go get an MBA uh, or, you know, get a, a master's degree in something and they pay money 
to do that. And they have a period of time expecting a better return. I don't think there's any better street MBA than launching your own company. Trust me, you're going to learn a lot more (laughs) in the day in, day out of running a business uh, to make you more well-rounded and valuable for whatever you choose to do next than anything. Uh, Secondly, be aware that uh, there are a lot of free resources out there with the Small Business Association. I feel like there's no reason that you Um, You can't self-educate in this space. You don't need to pay a ton of money to somebody else to do that. Um, There's people that will help you with coaching with business plans and accounting software and all the things that you need to piece together uh, to be successful. And the third is, you know, run things as a slash business. You know, for the first two years that I was working in this social impact space, I had my day job. I was selling storage devices and servers for a tech company. Um, And I found ways to use my mission and my inspiration of disrupting human trafficking as a case study. Um, How could I apply new technology innovation to this problem area? How could I pilot something with a proof of concept? How could I build a minimum viable product to show that there is impact that could be had so that it's a double bottom line uh, impact? It's not just profit, but it's also societal benefit. I think a lot of people are thinking more broadly post-pandemic about the impacts that they're having in the world. They're expecting more from employers. And I think it's a competitive advantage for employers that are looking for that top talent to create space for people to innovate on things they care about in a way that benefits the company financially. If it's just for philanthropy, donate to a nonprofit, volunteer your time. But if you have an idea that really can make a successful business, like in the instance of what we did, don't limit yourself. There is a lot of opportunity that can be had by stepping out into a new world from a learning perspective, from a financial perspective, because when it's your company, you get the equity and you get the upside. And from a, you know, a leadership development perspective, I'm a much better leader and team player today now that I understand all the things that need to happen in a company versus the days that I was a siloed engineer and I was trying to build the best tech I could and I didn't have to think about the rest of the business. So I am a big fan of blowing up your career and redesigning your life, especially if you start to see yourself tipping on burnout. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. My journey was very much inspired by personal struggles uh, in the health area that were just, what got me here was not going to get me there. And I was going to, I was going to run myself into a ditch. So if you find yourself mid-career feeling that way, um, I'm actually writing a book in that space uh, on the process of resetting because I was looking for a book when I needed it and there was nothing there. Um, So, you know, looking at how do you stabilize, dream, and plan for a new future uh, in a organized way um, is a book that I'm writing called The 90 Day Career Cleanse. And it's really focused on how to go from burnout to more sustainability in your career. I love that. Love that. That's fantastic. So that's the, the book you're writing. You also have a podcast, don't you? So I'd love for you to kind of share, you know, what what topics you uh, go into there as well. Yeah. So Uh, As a Data for Good sector lead for Launch Consulting, I have the honor of hosting their podcast, Navigating Forward, where we focus on luminaries, movers and shakers um, that are doing things in artificial intelligence and data to move us forward as a society. So it's a mix of uh, executives from large companies, 
uh, CEOs of small companies and experts in academia talking about some of the more current topics of trends in AI. So things like AI bias and disinformation and uh, digital transformation, healthcare innovation. Uh, We cover a broad variety of topics about how people are applying technology to drive innovation. And it's really fun to be able to see all the different ways people are bringing their unique perspectives uh, into business and solving big, hairy challenges. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And uh, and finally, just as we wrap up here, where's the if if anyone wants to get in touch, where's the best place? Where do you tend to hang out online? Um, so I'm mostly on LinkedIn. Uh, that's the the social platform of choice that I focus on. Uh, you can also catch me at my website, www.lisathee.com, all one word. Um, I have some of my keynote speeches up there if you're interested in learning more about that capability. Uh, I also have a lot of information around online safety and uh, consulting and cybersecurity. So if any of those topics are interesting to people, uh, my goal is to provide a lot of resources so that if you're challenged in any of those areas, you have one-stop shop to go to. Fantastic. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of Consulting podcast. And as always, you can find out more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofconsulting.com.